Good morning. It's February 24th. It's a sunny morning in New York, and it is as warm right now as it's going to be all day. This is your Indignity Morning Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Skoka, taking a look at the day and the news. On the front of the Times, Ruth Graham has a report from Wilmore, Kentucky, where over the past two weeks, some 50,000 people have descended on the campus of Asbury University. To partake in, the story says, what some scholars and worshipers describe as the nation's first major spiritual revival of the 21st century. People are driving from all over the country, lining up for half a mile in the snow, staying up till all hours to try to get inside the chapel, where, for a while, participants say they can feel good instead of bad. It doesn't feel like America in 2023 in here, said Margaret Feinberg, who traveled from Park City, Utah, to attend. It just melts away. America in 2023 is nevertheless nibbling around the edges of the article, with celebrity preachers trying to jump in, and a note toward the end that by this week, the activist and author Lance Walno was suggesting in a television appearance that perhaps Donald Trump had supernaturally summoned the revival himself. But inside the chapel, Graham writes, none of the big names promoting the revival were invited to take the stage, where a group of student musicians and college chaplains led a distinctly lo-fi service. Elsewhere in news involving big names and spirituality, a publicist for Elizabeth Koch, the daughter of malevolent billionaire Charles Koch, got a reporter from the Times business section to sit down with her so she could talk about what she's doing, which revolves around promoting wellness and self-actualization through a now trademarked concept called the perception box. An invisible but ever-present mental box, which she says distorts our perceptions of everything and everyone around us. Most of the external conflict, messiness, and miscommunication in the world, in corporations, in relationships, in families, in every aspect of our lives, is caused by internal conflict, she told the reporter, which is a remarkable sentiment coming from someone who inherited a vast personal fortune that was built on extraction, exploitation, and misery in the literal physical world, and which has been defended and enlarged through decades of political manipulation and propaganda. From that angle, it gets sort of hard to tell the difference between a perception box and a really large bank vault. In other perception boxes, the objective reporter Jonathan Wiseman took advantage of the Times' news analysis format, or in this case, political memo format, to write a mediocre opinion piece about the political response to the East Palestine rail disaster, in which the substantive questions surrounding it such as what role cost-cutting played in bringing about the disaster, or exactly how poisoned the air and water actually are, get reduced to the question of how useful or non-useful those points may be to the contending political parties. In some sense, Wiseman writes, both sides are right, both sides are wrong, and in the bifurcated politics of this American moment, none of the arguments much matter. That could have been a memo to an editor about why not to do this piece. At the top of the opinion page, there's a piece by writer Catherine Miller, Biden's greatest strength is also his greatest vulnerability, which is supposed to be grappling with the question of whether Joe Biden is too old or whether Joe Biden is going to be too old if he runs for president again and wins. The piece manages to name check a whole lot of important old people, including Charles Grassley, Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, Bernie Sanders, Mitt Romney all the way back to Clement Attlee and Conrad Adenauer. But nowhere does the piece bother to mention Senator Dianne Feinstein. For that, you have to go to Frank Bruni's newsletter under the headline, Dianne Feinstein is old? Absolutely. She's also an absolute giant. It's an incredibly bleak and evasive 
piece of writing, starting with Bruni assigning himself the task of debunking the impression that she's already gone. No, he writes, she plans to leave the Senate at the end of 2024, almost two years from now, and she announced that only last week. He goes on to write, let's give this formidable trailblazer her considerable due, especially in light of all the scorn heaped on her over the past few years, all the people pointing her toward the exit. Bruni then rehashes some of her accomplishments, a mix of real trailblazing feats, like being the first woman elected to the Senate from California, and things like she became the longest-serving California senator in history, and she became the longest-serving female senator ever. She's 89 now, Bruni writes, the oldest current senator, and there has been much talk about whether she brings adequate vigor and optimal acuity to the job. That coincides, he writes, with a larger conversation tied to President Joe Biden's apparent determination to seek a second term that would end when he's 86, about age, ability, optics, and when a leader should cede the reins. It's a fair and necessary discussion. A fair and necessary discussion that Frank Bruni is desperately trying not to have. The impression that Dianne Feinstein is already gone is not created by people trying to hasten some political narrative, and the scorn directed toward her is not some gratuitous lack of appreciation of a fine and distinguished long career. She doesn't know where she is. She's not in the Senate, except as a warm body. She didn't even know she'd announced her own retirement. She used her power to hold on to power until she was incompetent to exercise that power. And if you can't talk honestly about that, you should not even be trying to write about our gerontocracy. That's the news. Stay warm and well inside your perception boxes. We'll talk again on Monday.